Thank you, worship team. Good morning. My name is Rick Meyer. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community. And this morning's scripture is from Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. And if you're using the Blue Pew Bible that's in front of you, that can be found on page 724. 724. As is the custom uh, at Christ Community, would you please stand for the reading of the word? The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophecy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and you will cause, you will cause flesh to come upon you and to cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and, I as, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophecy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it declares the Lord. You may be seated. Please take a few moments to reflect upon these words. Oh, it's good to be here. It's good to see y'all. Um, 
if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, my name is Sam Kennedy. Uh, I was on staff here for quite a while. I was a member of the church here with my family for quite a while. Um, we're a part of a new church plant downtown called Downtown Prez right now, and uh, it because it's a very small little church plant, all the Sunday volunteers are out of town, and so my wife Shauna has to be there to help with the welcome team. So um, we're sorry they can't be here. I know most of the reason you invite me to come back is just to see my family. So, But if you want to see my family, you can take one of these cards and hang it on your refrigerator. Do people hang things on there? You can stick it to your refrigerator, and then you can see my family whenever you want. And um, if you would, when you look at it, would you pray for us? And if you want to know more about how to uh, stay in touch with us, get our newsletter, know how to pray, or uh, get involved with us and uh, partner with us. Man, I'd love to talk to you. I'll meet you outside after the service, or uh, we can go have coffee or lunch sometime. Would you pray with me? <sighs> Gracious Father, what an amazing privilege to get to gather here underneath the authority of your life-giving word. Life and death are in the power of your words. And every single word that you have caused to be preserved in Scripture is infallible, is authoritative, and is exactly what we need this morning. Lord, would you be present with us by your Spirit and by your word? Would you help me to declare these things faithfully? And would you transform us? Would you renew us? Would you resurrect us? You know exactly what we need, even more than we need. We know our, our own hearts. So we look to you. We're entirely dependent upon you and your grace. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, every week in our RUF large group meetings, we take some time uh, on Tuesday evenings, in Cameron Hall right now, which is a lecture hall at UNCW, and we meet and we have a um, what's really kind of an evangelistic worship service. It's like a cross between a Sunday school class and a Sunday morning worship service, and I, I go through a, a section of the scripture like I'm going to do now and try to explain and apply it. Typically, we go through books of the Bible at a time so students can get a handle on what a particular book of the Bible means because we value expository preaching just like Christ Community does. But one of the things we've been doing this semester is doing a series that's a survey of the entire Bible, the, the, uh, the entire story of redemptive history. And the point uh, is, is that we're trying to help our students, wherever they are when they open up their Bible, to feel like they have some footing and orientation so they know whether in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the prophets, the law, the wisdom literature kind of what's happening in the big story of God's people. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these three Old Testament figures in our REF meetings, uh, prophets, priests, and kings. And all these Old Testament figures pointed to Jesus Christ and are really everything that they bring in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is fulfilled with Christ and what he brings for us, God's New Covenant people, and the New Covenant. And... Um, so this was a sermon that I preached just the, the week before Thanksgiving. I was telling Trevor Molenhoff, one of the elders, about it, and he said, oh, yeah, so, so you're reheating leftovers for us. And I thought, <laughs> yes, I am. How very appropriate to uh, Thanksgiving weekend. So by way of introduction, 
I was trying to think about how to orient us to understand the situation of God's people at this particular point in uh, redemptive history. And I came across this article that I think perfectly illustrates the state that God's people were in. So if you bear with me, I'll explain it. I was, I was reading this article, and uh, the article actually broke because of a post on social media. And this is what the post on social media said. This woman um, from kind of Manhattan nightlife said this. I recently found out that a guy I was dating led a double life. He had a fake identity. He had a fake name. He had a fake job. He had a fake history, and he apparently had a very real family. And he didn't just scam me. He scammed all of downtown New York City. And I thought, I want to read this article and figure what it's talking about. And as I read this article, apparently what had happened with this guy who had conned all these movers and shakers, these uh, models and actors and very important people and fancy people in downtown New York City, he had scammed them into thinking that he was a venture capitalist who was investing in all of these you know, big projects all over the world. Um, he had scammed them into thinking that he was a descendant of this very famous French banking family called the Rothschilds, who basically invented modern banking. He scammed them into thinking that he was related to an old French prime minister. He came up with a fake name for himself. And what actually turned out is this guy who had been scamming and conning all these people in Manhattan uh, was actually not uh, from Paris, actually did not have all of these famous connections and relatives. He was actually from New Jersey. And uh, he was actually a rabbi. He was a scholar of ancient Jewish law, in particular, ancient Jewish marriage law. And he was very famous in the rabbinical Orthodox world. Uh, and one guy that was interviewed uh, for this article said about this community and, and the specific synagogues that this guy was, was with, they said, okay, if you're a rabbi in those synagogues, that's like being in the NBA of synagogues. Like, this is very elite. He's very brilliant, very smart. And so I started to ask, what happened to this guy? Like, how did that guy become this guy? What was going on? And as they interviewed other people, this is um, uh, another guy uh, said this. He says, a source within the Orthodox community told me that this double life is something of a pattern among some of its most ardent religious scholars, people who devote their lives to study, and then they need ways to blow off steam. I know about that. I work with college students. He says this, a very small percentage, maybe 1%, this source estimated, go on tropical vacations alone, jaunts through Europe, or might even take a few forays into Manhattan life, nightlife. Okay, this double life scenario, I'm not picking on Orthodox Jewish rabbis <laughs> because 1%, I think, if you think about evangelical pastors, 1% is probably a, a reasonable amount of people that actually make shipwreck of the faith, leave their families, secrets, lies, hypocrisy, abuse, scandal, one out of 100 our rate is not that much better. 
So it's, it's not a, a problem with a particular religious tradition. It's, it's a problem with the human heart. There is something about the human heart that deceives itself, that can deceive others, especially the very religious human heart that can hide behind a veneer of orthodoxy, of commitment to the Bible, while still nursing this, these um, secret fantasies, uh, th- these secret commitments that you never share to anyone else. And I thought that kind of hidden deception, that, that kind of um, hidden rebellion, that kind of surface-level piety that's masking this inner uh, turmoil, that's exactly the picture of God's people at this point in, in um, redemptive history. You know, God's people, Israel, had been brought into the land. They had prophets, priests, and kings, you know, Solomon, money, wealth, power, influence, all those things. You know, Israel was great again. And then they betrayed God. They betrayed his covenant. They turned away. They committed spiritual adultery. And God, just as he promised, uh, sent them out of the land to discipline them, uh, to teach them, uh, and to turn their hearts back to him. And this figure that, that comes up at this period um, in Old Testament history, when the people are turning away, when the kings are turning away, when the priests are turning away, and when God is sending his people into exile to discipline them, uh, this important figure comes up called the prophet. And the prophet's job is basically to act as like a covenant lawyer or a marriage counselor for, for God and his people, to hold peop- God's people to the vows that they made to commit themselves to their God and, and to turn them back, to open up their eyes, to do what apparently no one did to this guy who is running around, is, is, is to look him square in the face And to say, do you see where your life is headed? If you do not repent, if you do not turn around, it's going to be awful. But if you do turn around, there's grace, there's forgiveness. So um, that's what the Old Testament prophet's job was. They were were God's mouthpiece to call people back from their double lives, from their self-deception. Now, this passage that we're going to look at this morning in Ezekiel 37 is one of my favorite passages in all the prophetic books, and I love the prophets. That was like my favorite class in seminary. There's poetry, there's this vivid imagery, there's weird, uh, you know, zombie armies. What is that? And it's just so interesting, it's so fascinating, and something about the the imagery, um, the, 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 the poetic nature of it, I think it captures our hearts. And what we'll see is that in this passage, God speaks about the power of his word to revive a dead and rebellious people, how his word brings life and repentance, how when you or I or someone else who's religious and self-deceived, when we're stuck in sin, what we actually need is we need the life-giving grace of God working through the Word of God. 
That's what we most need, and that's what God sends his prophets to bring. That's what he talks about here in Ezekiel 37. I want to look at this uh, from three angles. This is a very traditional sermon, three points. They all kind of match up. One, the people's condition. Number two, the prophet's commission. And then number three, and finally, the future conclusion of prophecy. So first, let's look at the people's condition at the time of Ezekiel's ministry. The people are in Babylon. They've come into exile. This is in the 6th century. God has brought um, his people out of the land. Ezekiel's probably there around the same time uh, that Daniel is kind of coming up in the court in Babylon. And at this particular moment, what kind of shape are God's chosen people in? Just look at verses 1 through 3, verse 11. If, if I could describe the shape that they are in, I would say rough. They look like Carolina's football team last night. Rough to quite, quite rough. They barely showed up. Um, there were bad kings. There was false worship. They had broken their covenant with God. God had withdrew them from the land. The nation had split in two. You know the story from the, the historical books. And when God looks at his people at this particular point, when some of them, um, uh, Eugene Peterson talks about the, the people being basically two groups, the doubting and the despairing. The doubting are the people who are like, is God even real? Does God even care about us anymore? And then there's the despairing who's like, I don't believe in any of that spiritual stuff. I'm just going to focus on what's right in front of me. The doubters and the despairers. You have these people who are stuck here. When God sees these people, how does he see them? Look at verses 1 through 3. The hand of the Lord comes upon Ezekiel, and he shows him this vision. He brings him out in the spirit of the Lord. He's saying, I'm having a vision now, and he's setting him down in the middle of a valley, and the valley is full of bones. And as he leads him around the bones, you notice two things. They both are kind of marked off by the word behold. Behold, there's very many, and behold, they were very dry. Two important details. So very many of them, and they are so very dead. The problem is big, and the problem is desperate. You know, I was first looking at this passage um, in my personal devotions, and every now and then I'll come around to different churches, and you know I do it here sometimes, and talk about what we're doing in RUF. And in my morning devotions, I was thinking, okay, this is how I feel sometimes when I walk on campus. I'm going down Chancellor's Walk, and I see all these students, so many of them. And then I hear conversations you know, when they don't know that a pastor's listening. <laughs> or I see stuff that people post on social media, and, and I just think, they're so dead. They're so deceived. And there's so many of them. Um, and if you would pray for me, and, and for our family, and for our staff, because that sometimes it feels overwhelming. Like, there's so many, and they're so very dead. Sometimes, you know, we can think about the world that way, can't we? The church feels like this embattled minority. <laughs> and you look out, and we're like, wow, it's just... The, the unbelievers, there's so many of them, and they're so very lost, they're so very dead. 
and it feels overwhelming, it feels discouraging. I could preach a whole sermon about that, about how, you know, how, how very many and how very dead all of the people on the outside of the church are and how much they need Jesus. And if I did that, I would not be being true to this text <laughs> because who is being described right now? Who is actually being described? Is these very many, these very numerous people who are so very lost, the church. It's not the people outside of the church that God is looking at right now and saying, look at how dead they are. It's the people inside the church, inside the community of faith. He says, behold, verse 11, these bones are the whole house of Israel. These are my covenant people. This is my covenant community. There's so very many of them and they are so lost. They don't know the right hand from their left hand. Why? Why are they so lost? Because they had broken the covenant. Uh, God talks about this period in history where he's going to discipline his people because they'd walked away from him. And he, he talked about what was going to happen. It was, um, you know, a couple years before this, uh, about a century before Ezekiel and Amos chapter 8. Listen to this. This is God describing what's going to happen through another prophet. Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. He's saying, you don't want my word? Okay, have it your way. C.S. Lewis, you know, interestingly enough, he describes hell that way, that hell is God saying, okay, thy will be done. You want to live without me? Have it your way. So it is the condition of the people of God that Ezekiel is most concerned with. And I think that's really important for us to, to see if we're going to apply this passage correctly. One of my favorite uh, commentaries on all the prophets is uh, uh, the Isaiah commentary that's written by Ray Ortland, whose son wrote a book that sold a bazillion copies called Gentle and Lonely. But Ray Ortland says this, and I, I just love this. This is about the state of the church, the state of God's people at the time the prophets were ministering. He says, nothing is more important to the state of the world out there than the state of the church. God speaks first to believers so that his overflowing salvation can spread to all. Listen to this. The world cannot impede the expansion of salvation. The mediocrity of the church can and does. If the world is not experiencing the grace of God, the church is being untrue to its destiny. What the world most needs, I love this, what the world most needs is the church so obviously saved that the church is an alternative to convert to. Then he goes on, he says, what hinders God's blessing in the world today is not Hollywood or Washington. What hinders God's blessing is his own children in rebellion against him. The reason we see so little repentance in the world is that the world sees so little repentance in the church. Oh, the reason we see so little repentance in the world, it's not because of Washington, it's not because of Hollywood, it's because the world sees so little repentance in the church. And so God is saying to Ezekiel, look at the church. Look at these people who call themselves by my name. What are they actually like? They're so dead. Their condition is desperate. 
They're not just sick, they're dead. Not just mostly dead, very really and truly dead. Most sincerely dead, as the uh, Wizard of Oz says. Whenever things look dead, whenever things look desperate, what God's people need is God's life-giving word. So let's turn to the, the prophet's commission. Look at verse 4 through 10. What's God's solution to the people's desperate condition? He gives a very simple instruction to Ezekiel. Verse 4, prophesy, speak. This, this horrible situation, we think we need a plan, we need a committee, we need all these, we need a revival of worship. We need a, a good king in power. You know, all that good idea. But what does God start with? Preach. Prophesy. Say to them what I'm telling you to say. Prophesy and say to them, bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, this is incredible. Both the, the king's and the priests in the Old Testament have a really extensive list of responsibilities. I mean, they have all these different things that they're responsible for, you know, adjudicating uh, legal disputes and doing the sacrifices and the church calendar and all these other things. The prophet's job is one thing. He's a, he's a one-trick pony, but it's a good trick. Preach. Speak. The prophet is God's mouthpiece to his people. And here's the thing. When they speak, what are they speaking about? You know, if that's his one trick, what is the one trick? He's speaking the gospel. He's speaking about the reality of God, that he really is the Lord. Remember, God says, then they will know that I am the Lord. I'm here. I'm present with my people. I'm their covenant king. I have not given up on them who God is, that he is real, that he's living and active, that he's dealing personally with his, with his people. They speak, speak about who God is, about what he has done, what he will do. And what they're doing is they're, they're talking about each new unfolding chapter in the story of salvation. Whenever God's going to move covenant history into the next phase he sends a prophet to announce beforehand what he's going to do. And so prophets didn't just predict the future. They weren't like fortune tellers. One scholar says that they, were, they weren't just foretelling, talking about what's going to happen. They were forthtelling. That by telling it, they were actually bringing history to pass. God was working through them. That he was turning the world through the word of the prophet. Someone once asked uh, Martin Luther how he begun the Protestant Reformation, how the Protestant Reformation kind of toppled the Catholic Church. Some of you have heard this quote. Listen to what he says. Here's what happened. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amstorf, the, world, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. The prophet preaches the word about who God is, about what he's done, about what he will do, and the word does 
to work. Isn't that incredible? His word is living and active and powerful. And how does it work? I mean, the, be the best way that I can explain it is the way that scripture illustrates it. When God does anything, he announces it. He causes it. He calls it into being. God wants uh, to be, uh, you know, sun, moon, stars. And he says, Behold, let there be sun, moon, stars. Let there be day and night. Let there be man. Let there be water. Let there be clouds. He, he speaks all these things into being. His words have creative power. How does God draw a sinner out of self-deception? He says, wake up. Turn. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the powerful word of God hits a dead heart and transforms it. He calls what is not into being. Isn't that incredible? He does it today. People who, who I mean, this is my story. Not knowing that God was real, not knowing that forgiveness was possible, not knowing that there was a way to atone for the things that I had done or had been a part of, and to hear the message of the gospel preached, to know there is a God, that he's offering free and full forgiveness because Jesus' life died the death that you should have done that you should have died, and he lived a perfect life that you should have lived, and God is crediting his righteousness to you. It's yours if you want it. It's yours if you would only receive it. And that transformed my heart. It's beautiful. That's still how God works today. Something's, something happens when God's word is spoken. You see it in Jesus' ministry. He sees a blind man. He says, open your eyes and see. He sees a person who's paralyzed. Say, open your hands, stand up, and they can stand. It's incredible. What we most need is God's life-giving word spoken to us, spoken over us. But this word is not just for these people right now in this desperate position. Uh, this word that God has for Ezekiel is actually looking forward to the future because in all the, 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 the visions and the words that the, the prophets get in the Old Testament, there's always this element of anticipation, of looking forward. The prophet's commission was to speak the powerful, life-giving word to a particular people in a particular situation, but that word is always looking forward to this future consummation with the coming of Christ. That's the future conclusion of prophecy. What future event was Ezekiel looking forward to? Look at verse 13. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live. I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know I'm the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. When does this happen, friends? When does God raise people from their graves and finally and forever place them in a land where they're never, they're never going to be threatened anymore, where there's no opposition, where it can finally be in God's presence, gathered together. You begin to see it in the ministry of Jesus, but we don't fully see it until the end of the book of Revelation, when all of God's people are gathered together from every tribe, tongue, and nation, 
and heaven comes down to earth. And the heavenly city comes down out of Jerusalem, a new redeemed people present with God in a new redeemed heavens and a new redeemed earth, in a renewed physical creation. That's what all of these promises are pointing to, the consummation when Jesus the King comes back to rule over his people and then all of the earth will be covered with the glory of God. That it won't be confined to one geographic location and one special you know, spot in the temple, but all of the earth will be a sanctuary. All of the earth will be a garden of Eden. It's so beautiful. And that's the promise that Ezekiel's prophecy looks forward to. And right now, it has begun. Look what Ephesians 2 says about the time that we live in. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right now, God is resurrecting dead people through his life-giving word. Later on uh, in this chapter in the book of Ezekiel, God talks about this thing that, that Jesus describes as the new birth. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. It's going to be such a dramatically radical change. You won't just be circumcised on the outside. You're going to be circumcised on your hearts. And I'm going to put my spirit within you and I'm going to cause you to walk in my laws. He's talking about the gift of the spirit by which we learn to obey God more and more, to walk with his power and to live as his image bears in the world. That's what we experience right now. We experience it in part. But it's a promise and a down payment on what we will experience fully in the future. The, the best image I have for this is uh, some of you have been to Jungle Rapids and you know that there's this um, uh, machine there in, in the arcade. A bunch of tokens and coins are all kind of laid up and they're stacked and there's like these stair steps, and there's this sweeping arm that's just sweeping the coins forward, and more and more coins get put in, and then they're all just kind of like stacked to the edge. Ford, you've been here. You know this. And they, they're all just like teetering on the edge. The coins are stacked, and then you just think, okay, if I just put one more token in, <laughs> that's going to spill them all out. Just one more little token. And so, you know, kids are walking by, putting in one token, thinking their token's going to be the last one that spills all the treasures out. Jesus Christ is the final token. He's the final prophet who comes. And what he brings, brings all of God's promises, all of God's treasure, all of the goodness that people have been waiting for, that has been building up over time. It spills out and God's people freely collect it all. Here's the thing about Jesus. Uh, the book of Hebrews says that uh, long ago and at many other times, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these last days, in this final phase of God's revelation, he's spoken us through a son, through his son. Now, what the writer of the book of Hebrews means is that there is not another phase of redemptive history to look forward to. There's not a new prophet who's going to come after Jesus, that he is the final piece of the puzzle. And what that means, friends, is that today is the day of salvation. There's not going to be another chance. There's not going to be another person coming later. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But right now, the coin has dropped. The treasures are falling out. 
We see new life springing up. Jesus is on the move. The new creation has begun. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn and repent. We're not promised another prophet after Jesus. He is the one. His words are the words that bring life, that bring transformation. His words are the words we need. Do you realize, friends, that you are living in the middle right now of a fulfilled promise? That despite what the world looks like on the outside, that God is doing exactly what he said that he would do. His power is living active. His power is at work. If you, in your heart, have some place on your insides that's harboring sin, that's harboring rebellion, that's holding on to some kind of idol, I beg that you would let God's word speak. That even if you don't know if you can let it, that you would beg God to bring it, to conquer your dead heart, to transform you. And that Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the founder and finisher of our faith, would grab a hold of you, put a new heart and a new spirit in you, and raise you from the grave. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word brings life to dead hearts. Lord, for those of us here, and I include myself in this, uh, who feel dried up, who feel self-deceived, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you move? Would you transform our hearts? We thank you for the authoritative, life-giving power of your word. We thank you for feeding us. Lord, would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you empower us and help us to change? We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.